Hello and welcome to Red's Business and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Barnes. I'm your co-host, Brad Ferris. Today, we're sitting down with a partner from Mills Oakley Lawyers, Scott Coulthard. We're talking about IP law, data privacy, and, and general technology law, and a bunch of other things, I'm sure. Scott, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Very welcome. Happy to be here. Awesome, mate. Let's start with your background. Uh, way before you were at Mills Oakley, uh, what did you, you just come out of uh, university straight into the law in- legal industry, or where did you start? I kind of didn't. Law was kind of an accident. Okay. I was at school, I was a professional musician, I was teaching and I was performing and I was in a few bands and I loved that but it would have upset my mother if I'd have just done music mm. and so I decided to do something else as well. I had no idea what I wanted to do, it was either going to be IT or law, couldn't choose between the two. In fact it was supposed to be medicine because back when mm. I was a kid she'd say, you're going to buy me an expensive car one day and <laughs> become a doctor, yeah, doctor yeah. Uh, but I was a bit of a sympathy vomiter as a kid so that was never going to happen. <laughs> Um, happily, I lost that. But I ended up studying IT and law because I couldn't right. choose between the two, did them both. So I became a programmer about a year and a half into my law degree because um, I was doing the IT at the same time. And so that paid the rest of the way through my law degree as well as playing in a band. Um, by that stage, though, by the time I finished law, I had five jobs and wow. none of which was law. <laughs> and so right. I had to find time to fit, you know, a legal career in. Um, so I lost a few of the jobs, kept playing in a band and uh, and joined a very tiny law firm with, with you know, afterthought was probably a mistake. Um, but, you know, it, it has to start somewhere and, and I did. Um, but I ended up having a specialty in technology law and music law um, because of what I did in my private time. Um, and that's pretty what, much my history. What did you play in the band? I was lead singer and guitarist in most of the bands I was. Oh, the front man. Was, yeah, the front man. Yeah. Um, in a few bands, oh, I've been session for a number of bands as well, and I've recorded with people as a session music. But in the bands that I've toured with, I've, I've been front man. Yeah, cool. So cross uh, music law. Can I throw a curveball at the start? <laughs> Please do. Cross collateralization. Cross collateralization. You heard that term before? I have, but not in the terms of music law. Yeah, when you have. Uh, um, you're one band. This is getting a bit old school now, but you'll sign up for an advance from a record company. It could be um, an album and a publishing deal. Um, and you could even have those, your publishing deal separate to your recording deal. But if the label was being a bit... Dodgy. Not so much dodgy. It's business smart. Because, <laughs> you know, you they would pay in advance to yes. the artist yeah. and that advance is repayable through royalties. Mm-hmm. So cross-collateralization means they'll pay you a publishing advance and they'll pay you an advance on your recording mm-hmm. and they'll go, cool, if you don't make the money back on this one, we'll cross-collateralize and we'll take the royalties for the other one to pay that one off. So anyway. Mm-hmm. So the question was? Had you heard that term before? <laughs> yes, I had. So, and yes, I was aware of that. But I mean, that's, I was about to say that's a long time standard. Ago. It was a long time ago, but yeah. it was pretty standard. Yeah. You know, mm. the, yeah. But I mean, you get it because the the label's taking all the risk. Yeah. Mm. Um, that said, musos hate to hear that, but that's the truth of it. Yeah. You know, mm. So, oh, it's not taking a risk because our music, well, he's having a bet on you and you're no one. Did you look after any big like artists or anything? Uh, I like looked a after a number advice? of artists. I, I wouldn't say any of them were particularly huge mm. because, um, you know, that was predominantly the music mafia in Melbourne looked after them. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, oh, and Sydney for that matter. Um, 
but I did look after some good name Brisbane artists, yes, and cool. um, uh, and they did pretty well. So mm. I must have negotiated the right contracts. <laughs> Hopefully they were talented, which helps. Nice. You can have a great contract and be a crap muse, and you're not going to last for long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, it was good fun. I didn't mind doing that, but I also find that you know, most musos don't have a lot of money, especially to start with, mm. and it's a bit hard as part of a bigger practice to to sustain that sort of management unless you do it on a percentage basis, which I do in the States, but I didn't want to do that here. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I now predominantly look after, in the entertainment space, filmmakers and um, uh, certainly know how to look after all the music law in that regard, but, yeah, so it's predominantly filmmakers now yeah. I look after in the entertainment space. Okay. So I saw from your background you were a partner at Hopgood Gammon and then mm. started your own firm and then went back to special counsel um, at, and then now a partner at um, Mills Oakley. What what, did you, what made you kind of drive your own uh, and start your own law firm? A single word answer will start that naivety. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing pretty well at Hopgood Gannon. It was a good firm. Yep. And um, I was a, a young partner there and um, I, think, I think I was the youngest partner there at one stage and um, uh, as in the youngest person to become a partner there. Uh, I was running a good practice. I founded their IP and tech practice there. It didn't exist before I got there. Um, right. And then several years into it, um, just before GFC, which I clearly didn't see coming, I thought, gee, it'd be a good idea to run my own boutique practice at some stage. Um, and I was very much supported by or egged on by perhaps my wife who'd run her own business for 20-odd years. Right. And so she said, look, give it a go. You're an expert, blah, blah, blah. Um, what I didn't realise then in my naivety is that enormous clients that I was acting for there aren't going to stay with you when you run to a small place, not because mm. they don't think you're skilled, but because your insurance policy doesn't go to $100 million anymore. Yeah, and right. um, your insurance policy might go to $10 million now, but most of the deals you're doing for them are larger than that, and so you're a bit naive to think you can run a small place and do that. Didn't realise that at the time. Nobody told me that. Um, still ran it for nine and a half years before I thought, why am I doing this, and merged that in with Mills Oakley where I am now. Very cool. Yeah. All right, so you actually uh, ran the practice and you still grew it, although you couldn't bring across many big clients like it originally intended. You still, I, still grew it. How many I found employees a way to do it. I found a way yeah. to do it. So I had six employees yeah, um, cool. at one stage there, and uh, I'd grown it from scratch, so just me originally, and there ended up being uh, four other lawyers in addition to me. Yeah, cool. Uh, and we're running a decent practice, um, but uh, I had to, you know, really – clients help bigger bigger clients help to to be able to act for them and i do it through the auspices of another firm like they'd brief a big firm and then the firm would subbrief me to go and do the work um otherwise the huge work couldn't be done by my firm right and i thought why am i doing this mm. <laughs> so it still took me nine and a half years to change it but um there you go nine and a half years later i merged in with mills oakley and yeah Sure, I had some good learnings in that time anyway. Right? Uh, and probably Indeed. some oh, fun times. I had a lot of fun times, yeah. but it was the, my reasons for starting it were the wrong reasons. Yeah, fair enough. All right, a bit of a curly one for you. What year is um, ChatGPT and AI going to take over the law industry? I don't think that's ever going to happen. But, mm. um, uh, you know, if, if there were no controls over it, it would take it over within a couple of years. But... There are a couple of controls. One's going to be statutory controls. The other controls are going to be people controls. Law firms will never let that happen. Um, ChatGPT is excellent at solving problems, but it can't humanise anything. It can't be a human. And a lot of being a good lawyer is about being human and understanding how people tick. And yep. uh, I just think that's something AI is never really going to get right. Mm. What are you seeing with you're getting clients coming back to you with, you know, ChatGPT can did this for me already. Like, what what are they coming back to you with? Is that changed the way that you're doing like law these days? It does. It changes it for the better. Uh, again, yeah, okay. if I install my own controls on it, and there are look. I'm a massive fan of ChatGPT. Okay, I use it all the time, partly for fun, partly to write songs. My next album's actually going to be ChatGPT and me. Um, <laughs> and, 
Oh, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kid you not. Um, uh, And it's really good. I've even checked the terms and all the IP belongs to me, so that's wonderful. (laughs) Um, uh, But I had a client yesterday um, wanted me to uh, draft uh, a notice to go to their customers, uh, letting them know that they're going to up their prices by CPI. Um, They just wanted to get the drafting right in accordance with the contract they had that I drafted for them a couple of years ago. Uh, but they also, they're in IT, and they said to me, oh, look, here's, what Chat, here's how ChatGPT said to draft it, and they sent me ChatGPT's version. And it wasn't too bad, actually, but it was very ChatGPT-y yeah. and not person-y yeah. and a, a little bit over the top even. Um, so whittled that down a bit and made sure I did make enough changes to justify the fee I was going to charge. Yep. And um, uh, But that's I think that's a good thing for, for clients to do. How do I use it as a lawyer? I use it as a lawyer and get my team to do it. I never ask it what the law is because it's not necessarily mm. going to get that right. Even if it does, you don't want to rely upon it. You can't outsource to a machine. Yep. Um, but I will often um, – uh, what did I do the other day? So I had someone get me to draft an agreement the other day, a distribution agreement with a particular, particular type of clause in a specific industry. And I thought that is so specific – so I thought, oh, I've got no idea because I haven't been in that industry before, drafted plenty of distribution agreements, but had no idea how to use this clause in the context of this industry. And so I asked ChatGPT, I said, in the context of this industry, how would you use a clause that provides for this type of earnout, blah, 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 in a distribution agreement context when I'm acting for the distributor? And I went to ChatGPT 4, by the way, which is better than 3.5. 4 is much more intelligent and gives you better answers. 3.5 gets a bit stupid sometimes. But it went bang, came up with these answers. First of all, it gave me the usual you know, disclaimer saying, well, I'm not a lawyer, yeah. Yeah. but here's seven things you should look at in that type of course, blah, 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 blah. And it was absolutely right. And it made me realise I wasn't an idiot because I thought of five of them myself, but two of them I hadn't. Yeah, right. Two of them I hadn't even thought. I thought, yeah, that could be an issue. And so that is pretty good guidance you can use. And you've got to do the drafting yourself, mm. but I think it's a good tool that lawyers should use moving forward to give them ideas as to mm. how to solve problems because what it did was solve a little problem for me. Yeah. What about the uh, privacy side? Are you worried that... You know, you you might, uh, or not so much you, but a lawyer might put too much detail in there, maybe some client information, and ask ChatGPT, and that obviously goes out to the rest of the world. Are you concerned about the privacy side with using like AI in general? Legally, no. Practically, yes. Mm-hmm. Legally, no, because according to their terms, presuming they comply with them, they don't actually store any of that detail, uh, and um, ChatGPT tells you in its terms that it can't remember anything or any personal details or anything you tell it other than to answer queries that you've put to it. And so anybody else, anybody else with another account who asks a query of it, it won't be able to recall those details. However, it does remember those details in the storage that it makes for you. Mm. So if someone else uses your account or hacks into your account or the next time you use your account, it's storing in on some cloud basis somewhere the private data you put in and that's no better than putting it on Dropbox or anything like that which mm. most law firms are not allowed to do um, a lot of law firms do by the way but they probably shouldn't certainly if yeah. they're not you know if the AS certified they can't and and we are so we can't so I don't <laughs> so no um, uh, so from a legal perspective no I'm not concerned about it. from a practical perspective I am mm. because it is still your client's private details stored on a cloud somewhere you're not in control of mm. Brad any other questions you want to ask ChatGPT related no. Rolling back to you focusing on technology law, what kind of drove you to wanting to do technology law at the start? 
uh, or being interested in technology before studying that and, um, you know, law. What, what, what was the need for that or want? I got interested in IT because I'm a real tech nerd. Okay. I'm a bit of a maths head. I love okay. the tech and I love the maths. And I don't know why I love the maths, but I do. I've always found maths pretty easy. Yeah, fair enough. So programming. So <laughs> I was a 14-year-old programming a Commodore VIC-20 computer, how to make Pac-Man games in 3,583 bytes, um, which – confused the hell out of Anna, nor the hell out of my sister, whose computer it was. Um, uh, but she ultimately gifted that fantastic Vic 20, 3,583 bytes to me. And that instilled my love of programming. So by the time I got to university, I was already a pretty reasonable programmer. Um, up the ante to get through programming, which I found that degree quite easy, um, which was great. Um, unlike Lawler, it was a lot harder. Mm. Um, by that stage, I was in bands chasing girls anyway, so it didn't really matter. But um, uh, by the time I'd finished uni, I was totally enamoured with with programming in a commercial context and I did have a commercial programming job. But one thing that I had noticed, especially studying and finishing my law degree, was that in IT the contracts were terrible in the 90s. Hell, even now, it's 2023, but even now a lot of the IT contracts you see are just abysmal contracts, not because as a contract they're terrible, because they just don't suit the transaction and they're not drafted by someone who knows what any of the terms actually mean in practice. And you often have this massive divergence between what the lawyer thinks the issue is and what the client knows the practical issue is. Um, The lawyer doesn't understand the practical issue. When you say it's horrible, it's horrible for who? The person doing the developing work or the business that's signing the contract? Whomever's a party to the contract, it's terrible okay. for them because the contract doesn't really match the transaction. Right. I, I found that all the time. I had these terrible, you know, contracts for the sale of land being bastardised into IT licence contracts and stuff, and right. the two just don't meet. You know, the, the only bit they got right is the parties, mm. um, and that was a real endemic issue at the time. And I thought, well, I wouldn't mind sort of fixing that. And so by the time I became a, a solicitor. I was heavily into getting into as many IT contracts as I could just to fix them because they were all broken. All of them were broken. Now I find them less broken, but still, these days you still find a lot that are broken. And so it became an accidental specialty um, because I I kept putting my hand up to do everyone's IT contracts because I liked them. Yeah, interesting. So just your annoyance for when you were doing coding work and the contracts and drove you to focus more on the legal side. Yeah, Um, my my first IT boss, my first commercial IT boss anyway, I uh, was a property manager, a good guy, but knew nothing about computers and so left it all to me to program, to automate his office basically, which is what I did. And um, he put me under this contract that he drafted, which was barely a contract. Um, and he didn't get too offended when I told him very nicely that it was abysmal. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, re- I redrafted it. He let me redraft it for him and I did. Um, and I just thought, wow, if this, I can't be the only person this has happened to. And sure enough, I'm not. Mm. Um, it happened to everybody else who was in IT who didn't have a legal connection. Their contracts were either didn't exist or were terrible. Or both. Yeah, right. There you go. What, um, what's some recent changes in your industry? So in that kind of IP pattern, trademark kind of industry, what, what's, what's happening legally? So the most recent changes in IP law probably from August 21, I suppose, is recent enough. You had a few patent changes like back in um, – 2018, they had that Productivity Commission report that talked about um, could we make improvements to the patents and trademarks and designs industries and how do we make things more robust and more economically useful and so that everybody gets benefits. And after that report, eventually legislation came about that actually passed on 25th of August, 21. In relation to patents, it um, only made a tiny change but had big effects. One of the changes it made was to introduce an objects clause to the patents legislation 
that um, talked about things like economic well-being through tech innovation, transfer and dissemination of tech and all that sort of gear. And that had flow-on effects for how courts interpret the Patents Act. And then came those decisions you've probably heard of about the, the Thala decision. Uh, with uh, You haven't heard of Thala no. and Dabas? Okay, so Dabas is an AI, which we were just talking about before. Right. And uh, Dabas uh, was invented by Dr. Stephen Thala. Um, and Dabas created of straight through AI um, a patentable way, a brand new way of uh, affixing plastic lids um, uh, in a Tupperware type context to keep the liquid in and keep the French in, all this sort of stuff would make Tupperware very happy even though it wasn't theirs. Um, and Dr. Stephen Thaler thought this is great. Um, so I'm going to lodge a patent and I'm going to make Dabas the inventor. So Dabas, not being a human, was the inventor. Mm. The patents office said, can't do that, kind of need a human to be an inventor. Um, the federal court said, you know what, I don't like that. Um, I think I think an AI can be an inventor because the Patents Act doesn't specifically say it has to be a human. Then the full federal okay. court said, no, because of these changes that they made in the Patents Act, they probably accidentally made this change, but uh, those changes really meant that it has to be a human for there to be that economic incentive uh, yeah. for the tax. Because it would be the human telling the AI what to do to come Correct. up with the thing, right? And Correct. that's where it landed. Clearly, Dr. Stephen Thaler was the applicant, so mm. that's fine. There's a difference between the applicant and the inventor, though. And um, so his argument, which I, which I really love, and I wish the High Court had accepted his leave to appeal and made that decision, but they didn't. They refused leave to appeal. So legislation has to change that now. But anyway, um, the end result is currently, accidentally as a result of these changes, um, an AI can't be an inventor. You must nominate a human as the inventor. Mm. Um, Dr. Stephen Thaler wanted it so that he could be the applicant, but his AI, Davis, could be the inventor. So why, um, why, why did he want that? Um, because, well, it's an ideal, isn't it? You know, your AI can invent things and get credited as being the inventor. Oh, okay, so that's so, all it was. So Literally. it would create more yeah. things and get credit for it. The, yes. the AI that he made would get credit for it, is it? Well, he'd be the applicant, so he gets all the profits. Um, but he gets to say, my machine made that. And my machine, Dabas, is the inventor. Um, right. Which is a very nice idea. I do think one day the law will change. I don't think we're far away from the law changing to allow that because it really doesn't make a difference. Mm. Um, and it achieves the ideal, makes people happy. It's a good story to tell. Yep. And all they have to do is change the Patents Act to say an inventor doesn't have to be human. Because you, um, you, you had this question, right, about like AI creating music, right? Mm. Um, who uh, owns no, the- we had a... Oh yeah, who owns the, the the copyright effectively? So you know your album. You've obviously mm. you've obviously uh, checked it out, and I think when ChatGPT started to get what momentum and popularity more uh, to the general masses, which what beginning of the year, end of last year, I think, mm. um, there were some situations that I read about where I was saying, well, who's the similar to this patent thing? Like, so who's the writer? Who owns the copyright? Mm. And I don't know where that actually landed. It's a tough question um, because you've got all sorts of different copyrights in music, don't you? You've got yes. um, obviously you've got the sound file copyrights, which are separate, but then you've got the lyrics, you've got the, the music, you've, yeah. all of that, all yeah. of that. Um, you, you know, your chord progressions. Broad Ed Sheeran keeps getting sued for that, but um, you know, he's not breaking anybody's breaching anybody's rights by doing what he's doing. Mm. Um, he won. He did win, mm. um, and for the right reasons, although wrong reasoning. But you know, I won't bore you with that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's a whole other podcast. That one, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, the abridged version is, you know, chord progressions, can they be copyrighted? Not really, not when they're based upon what are called turnarounds. If you're a mus musician, you know what turnarounds are, and most music is based upon... T don't know what a turnaround is? No. It's a sequence of three or four chords put together that humans... Like, turnaround one is, um, you know, one chord... Let's say, say your key is a C. You go from C down to A minor to F to G. That's called turnaround one. And 
a good half of the songs you'll ever hear today are based upon Turnaround yes. 1. And, uh, so how many notes are there? 13 notes or something? Well, there's 12 notes. 12 notes. And, uh, yeah. and there's You're going to have an issue at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's endless combinations. The longer the song gets, the more, the more distinct you can be. Yep. So the old argument is can you have copyright over chord progression? The answer is yes, but only if it's original. But when is it original? All this sort of stuff. And that's what leads to all these music fights. Mm. Um, uh, you know, people like Ed Sheeran are smart enough to know what turnarounds sound good. And so he writes all these songs with good turnarounds stitched together. And then someone says, oh, you know, this, this bloke did this back in 1950 and, well, of course he bloody did. It was the same turnaround. But mm. that doesn't mean anyone's rights were breached. It yeah. was done before the earlier fellow too. Yeah. So, you know, it makes me angry, those things. <laughs> Can you tell? Can you tell? Yeah, it's yeah. The, <laughs> the other thing that we talked about, uh, one of our guests, uh, how did it come up, mentioned that he thought, I'm paraphrasing and probably poorly, but it was around creativity and ChatGPT will... Reduce. I think did we use the word kill creativity? Yeah. And I kind of we had a little bit of a philosophical conversation because, like your example, when you asked it a question to help you with a particular uh, case or an idea, I think in that example is a good example where it actually helps your creativity. Absolutely. Because you were kind I'm of totally on that side. Kind mm. of call and response with the machine, and you're 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 it's asking a a question. Yeah, you're bringing. It's giving you a response. You take that response. You go, mm, okay, That's cool. Exactly you think about right. it. So, I, yeah, we. I'm on that side of the fence as yeah. well. It's going to kill creativity if you just say, "Here, do this for me," because I don't want to. Yeah, that, that that just means you weren't creative in the first place. Yeah. And well, that, what I say, meant that was Lani's podcast, I believe, and um, no, it was uh, that, a lock. Oh yeah, that was yeah. a lock. And I think he was saying something along the lines of, "It's really interesting that the industries that are getting, uh, you know, I guess, uh, job share taken away." The first is like marketing and sales and those kind of jobs, which are the more creative industries that are meant to be getting automated. But, you know. Uh, look, I've never got what I want in the first hit. Like <laughs> yeah. you always have to yeah, go back and forth with ChatGPT. Yeah. But then you still have to have a vision in mind of what you want to get to. Yeah. And that's where people are getting the results. If people just go in there and they still don't know anything and they, they're like, oh, just type something in and give me the answer. I mean, it's just basically cheating and cheaters never prosper. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to actually – engage with it you've got to have vision what do i want to get out of it and then when it spits something out that's exactly yes that's where i wanted to go with it now i'll yeah. take that and i'll edit it or it's a good idea or whatever so, so. so i mentioned before i'm, I'm uh, doing an album with chat gpt i'm actually six songs into it already but um it takes six or seven it only takes six or seven iterations to get the actual song done yeah but it starts with in my case it starts with me saying to it all right write a poem that doesn't have to rhyme about this topic and with perhaps this turnaround and with this chorus and um, instantly, bang, here it is, and it'll do that. And it reads reasonably well. I might need to change something. I might say, no, make it less dark here and a bit lighter here and a bit darker here. And it will. And then the third iteration will say, all right, what chords would you put to that? Sometimes it says, oh, I don't know what chords would suit that. I'm not a musician. Other times, and it seems to do it somewhat randomly, it'll say, yeah. I think based upon this poem <laughs> you and I have written, we should use these chords. Right. <laughs> and it'll give you some chords. And then I'll say, all right, add a chorus here and add a bridge here. And then before you know it, after six or seven iterations like that, you're done, you've got this great song and all I've got to do is, is really colour the music. Yeah, right. Interesting. Are you worried that uh, other people will ask similar prompts to ChatGPT and get a similar kind of outcome I'll just look for so, their so stuff? I, it's, it's, we did get philosophical, but we can actually have this conversation. So I likened it in another podcast and I think it went everyone, over everyone's head because they didn't aware of this. But Logic, we were talking about Logic, uh, Logic Pro, yeah. the, the digital audio workstation on Mac software. earlier. Um, and the DAWs, they're called, so DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, was the democratization of production, effectively. <laughs> it now has 
previously we were talking about music deals. Yeah, you had to go to label. You had to get a million bucks. You had to get advance. You had to repay that through royalties because you had to go to a big studio to get all the gear to be able to actually record anything that was of any decent quality. Now, and so, so people who might have had good ideas were kind of locked out. The barrier to entry was too high to be able to make an mm. album. So only the people who had the right connections at the right time, knew the right people, could grease the right wheels, um, would get the opportunity to get an advance, make a, make a deal, make an album. Then you have technology comes in and now with this laptop, if you have the right creativity, the right ideas and the right, the right amount of talent, you can release, uh, you could record in an hour, well, I'm pushing it, I'm sure it's been done. Uh, uh, a number one hit. You could you could upload it. You could publish it. The other thing record labels did was distribution. Right, that was a big thing. They you had to physically get your music into stores. The, the only big addition is the obvious one. You've got to produce it as well. And um, producing is not simply being creative and writing it and recording it. You've got to record it right. You've got to mix it right. You've got to master it. You've got to EQ it right. You've got to use the right reverbs. Do exactly. the right tweaking, and you've pretty much got to know very much about what you're doing to be able to do that properly. So you just have to have talent, right? So hypothetically, you can do all those things on this device. Um, yes. Whereas previously, it was you know yeah probably a million bucks really if you want to get something like that mm. done. Um, so I think it's just another tool, right? So That's if you've exactly got the right, right vision, yeah, you've got the right, right creativity, you know what you're going to do. You're going to use that tool um, to create the output. That, Utterly agree with that. Yeah. That's mm. exactly right. Uh, you know, AI is a tool. It's a clever tool, but it's a yeah. tool. No, I definitely agree. And with that. everyone has equal so access to it. So, yeah. again, it just democratizes the. Oh, I love it. It's Square nice. looking at it. Was there anything else that, that's changing in that kind of IP law space? Yeah, there's been a couple of things. So, the, one of those other things that um, changed, there's another case called Caladata, I won't bore you too much with, but it talks basically about something called the doctrine of exhaustion in relation to patents. So, until that, um, which was, well, that was late 2018 from recollection. Um, for the previous hundred years prior to that, there was a um, there was an implied license. So if I'm a patent owner, and I've got a patent over a, a product, and um, I sell that product in bulk, the purchaser has an implied license from me to use it for the purpose for which I, it was sold to them. So they can do certain things with it. They might be able to repair it. They might not be able to. Depends on what my patent license rights say. But it was an implied license to them to do that. But that all changed. Um, with the passage of this legislation and the Caladad case um, is where the, the High Court decided that was the that was the case. It changed um, after that hundred years to what's called the doctrine of exhaustion. What happens now is um, I'm that same patent owner. You've bought the product, but you are now allowed. Um, I don't have the exclusive right anymore to use it or to modify it necessarily within limits. Um, the only exclusive right I have now, instead of all those exclusive patent rights you used to have, the only exclusive right I've now got is to make it. And so um, that changed the 100-plus-year-old implied licence thing. So what that really does is allow people to repair their own things that they've bought without having to go back to the manufacturer, provided they're not deemed to be making something new. There's a whole... That's that's another whole shit fight. Mm. Uh, uh, so I don't know if we're going to bleep that out. It's fine, man. Fine, very good. Um, <laughs> it's an adult audience. It's uh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that that's a whole other bun fight um, <laughs> uh, to do with um, uh, to do with the courts. They always help the courts out, don't they? Help us lawyers out. Yeah. But yeah, that was a fairly significant change, um, which was good for buyers, good for um, the general populace. So they don't mm. have to pay expensive repair bills anymore, as long as they're not making a new product. Um, so there was that. There are a couple of minor changes to do with designs um, and trademarks, which really just greased the wheels for making things a bit administratively easier uh, to get them through. Um, they added things like you know, a 12-month grace period for um, 
uh, for designs and things like that, uh, prior use to fence. Um, there was a I, I, actually there was one significant change for trademarks that was um, parallel importations. You you know all about those? Heard about those? I have heard. Refresh oh. my memory. So somebody oh, this is imports basically from overseas. Ripping off. Yeah, so actually, it, this is a music thing as well. Music it industry, yeah, it can be. CDs. But this is um, this, this change was more to do with. Oh, I suppose CDs. It applies to CDs. As well. yeah. It applies to all goods, not services. Okay, yeah. It applies to goods. Um, where if you imported it. from overseas something with a trademark on it, um, previously there was a section of the trademark act called Section One Twenty Three that said that's not a breach of the trademark owner's rights if that trademark owner specifically authorised the affixing of that trademark to the goods. So that facilitated. Um, authorise parallel importation of goods. Um, most trademark owners, of course, want to control the jurisdictions in which they mm. sell things and so they don't want you to import it from overseas and start selling them at different rates that they are in that mm. jurisdiction or here. Um, so Section 123 was unhelpful for trademark owners um, because they couldn't control things. But now um, uh, they've made things even less helpful for trademark owners by changing that a little bit so that because one of the things where the poor old importer who thought they were doing the right thing um, would go awry for them is if they found out they thought reasonably that the trademark owner had authorised the attaching of the trademark, but in fact they hadn't. They just got ripped off by the person overseas who took the money. Real trademark, real affixing over there, but no authorisation with the trademark owner. Right. Um, so they'd fall afoul even under, despite Section 123. That's changed now so that if the importer has a reasonable basis for believing that the trademark owner had, uh, you know, if they've made reasonable inquiries about it, such as seen a certificate of authenticity or something from, from overseas, um, and if it looks reasonable and not fake, um, then it doesn't matter whether the trademark owner has actually authorised it, as long as the importer's got a reasonable basis for thinking they did, and as long as it's a genuine trademark, then they're okay. So, so a practical example of that, again, we're going back, but again, people who listen to this, I'm sure are familiar with CDs. I don't know if you are, Bounzi. What do you think about so all of this goes back to, again, you know, we've been talking music earlier. I had a passion for music, worked out I wasn't going to be a rock star, so I got, started uh, getting interested into the uh, music business side of things um, and worked on a couple of the major record labels in my previous previous life. And Parallel Imports, the practical example was, you know, they're, uh, say, Sony Australia's licensed to produce CDs. They own the copyright locally in this territory, so say it's Australia, New Zealand. Um, and then parallel imports for them would be, you know, someone buying a whole bunch of legitimate uh, CDs from Asia potentially and then trying to sell them here and that was considered yes. a parallel import. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so mm. practical example. So, yeah, so it helps the importers to an extent as mm. long as they're not just being dodgy and not taking reasonable steps. As long as they take reasonable steps, they're good. I want to pivot a little bit into cybersecurity, which is um, a thing we talk about a lot on this show. And uh, probably you probably spoke about it as all, all your career in uh, legal with the privacy side, but also uh, law firms in particular um, hold a lot of sensitive information, right? So it's probably quite important. Um, and there was a massive uh, law firm in Sydney that got breached mm. just fairly recently as well, which I'm sure that's probably been discussions at your, your firm about that kind of stuff. But um, what new regulation has been introduced in the last 12 months in that cybersecurity space? There's been a few in the last 12 months um, in the actual security side. There's um, this one's uh, sort of a long name, Security Legislation Amendment Critical Infrastructure Protection Act 2022. Mm. Uh, that started in April this year, so um, April last year, sorry. Um, so that was very recent. Um, 2nd of April 2022 from recollection. So it's a heap of twos. Um, 
they introduced a risk management program um, uh, requirement and enhanced obligations if a system is declared by the ministerial power to be of national significance. So if you if you manage your own or exclusive licensee of a system that's considered to be of national significance, there's a whole heap of obligations um, and freedoms for that matter and, and rights, but mainly obligations. So they define Placed upon you. They, they do, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they go into, I'm, I'm very much summarising, they go into yeah. a lot of detail yeah. about those things, but there's a whole new set of obligations required to keep those critical systems uh, secure, uh, in particular to avoid those sorts of things at national level as opposed to... Do you know what penalties are in place for, for that? Oh, significant. Yeah, yeah. There's um, uh, You're talking thousands of penalty units, so you're talking you know, six to seven figures of penalties. Right. Yeah, so pretty big penalties. Okay. Um, I mean, not every man and his dog in their hotel owns critical infrastructure, but if you do, yes, very significant obligations indeed. I feel like there's been a lot of talk in the industry, cybersecurity industry, about critical infrastructure, and I don't think everyone understands it properly um, in terms of what you need to do and... Um, what the ramifications if you do, you know, not put this stuff in place. Um, so yeah, that's understandable. I mean, that's brand new. I mean, the, the, the SOCI Act, the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, only mm. came into play in 2018. So it's it's not like it's been around since Jesus played fullback for Jerusalem. Mm. Um, you know, um, it's uh, um, it's all brand new concepts that people are just starting to get their heads around. So you can people can be forgiven for not knowing. But make no mistake about it, if you do control critical infrastructure, you're going to get very... Um, significant notices from the government telling you what you're required to do. And those notices are pretty good. It's, it's not like they're getting you in trouble for doing anything. They're, they're trying to take care of you and want you to take care of it. I mean, it's and a good thing. They yes, should probably do it's more. it's an excellent thing. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, and it's you know it's, it's for national security as well. It's mainly about national security. It's less about idiots in Russia picking on poor old law firms. Um, yeah. it's, it's more about making sure that that can't happen um, or at least trying to reduce it from happening on a national scale. Um so that's on the security side. On the privacy side, so security from a privacy perspective, the flow-on effect of this national security is, is it flows onto privacy and data breaches, right, to avoid those. Um, there have been recent changes there too as well, much more recent. Um, the, uh, what's it called, the Privacy Legislation Amendment Enforcement and Other Measures Act 2022 uh, that commenced earlier this year um, significantly increased the penalties um, that can be awarded against people who fail to meet their privacy and security obligations. Um, uh, the maximum penalty, for example, for a serious or repeated interference with privacy is now the greater of 50 million bucks or three times the benefit of the contravention or, when the benefit can't be determined, 30% of the domestic turnover of the company involved. Mm, so, which I mean, is massive. That's, that's massive, right? Yeah. Um, and so the bigger the player you are, the more care you've really got to take your system because the penalty could just be debilitating. Yeah, um, and that kill you, a, but you'll remember it. That's a good thing that went in. Oh, make it depending on depending on their business, but I think there was um, a lot of uproar because Optus, when they got breached, got like a two million dollar fine because that was the penalty, the limit at that time, instead of thirty percent or fifty million dollars. So that's post Optus. What was the date? That's post Optus. Uh, that was only early this year. So it was twenty twenty two act, but I don't think it was passed until early. Oh, right, didn't come into effect early this year. Twenty three. Yeah, yeah. I think there was, was a lot of uproar. I think that March, it was. Oh, the March or April this year. Yeah, right. I believe if it were in America and that same breach happened, they would have got a massive fine. Yeah. So it's probably good they put that thing in place. But it also is a weird concept because cyber... Uh, like, uh, Analyzing being, people uh, for being victims of crime. Yeah, if you're the victim, you know, I heard someone say this one time that if it's, uh, there's like a lady walking down the side of the street and has a handbag there and someone comes up and steals the handbag and runs away, do you get out a stick and whack the lady for being on the street? 
<laughs> you chase the criminal. That's what's so weird in the cyberspace is because it's usually but, from but overseas. Closer to, the truth of this, the closer to the practical example there is that she's carrying someone else's handbag with a big sign on it says there's a million bucks in here. Come and take it if you want. Um, yeah. then, then you slap the lady with a stick. Otherwise you don't. Not if it's her handbag and she's got it closed. Well, that's true. I assume there's a, you know, they'd have to prove negligence effectively or something yes, like that. Or, that's right. And there's a duty of care. That's yeah. right. The, the OAIC is only going to, the Privacy Commission is only going to pick on you and issue a fine if they really think you were at fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's been penalised yet, right, Scott, from, from, that, from that? Under the new legislation, believe. I don't think anyone has been. I think that's right. But mm. um, but that's coming pretty shortly, I would think. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to mention the names of any law firms, um, but there might be an issue there. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that one's crazy. Mm. Yeah, where do, where do you see that space going in terms of legal ramifications for data breaches going oh, forward? The, the cynical side of me suggests that it's, people are just going to point fingers more. It's going to be yeah. easier to have the finger pointed at you um, because it's it's not that we're becoming a nanny state. It's it's just the, the necessity for compliance is increasing yep. and the OAIC has a mandate to make sure that this happens. Otherwise, you know, they get the ask. Well, and it's happening a lot more often. Yeah, that's the, right. Uh, the threat actors, attackers, hackers, whatever you want to call them, they're just more prevalent because they're making money and it's lucrative. And Yeah, so where I see it going is that people are going to be a lot more careful initially. Um, people will be, you know, will give you access on prohibitive terms to their systems and all that sort of stuff. So it's going to be harder and harder to access stuff. There's going to be a lot more red tape involved yeah. in getting access to people's systems. Um, and I think those who don't do that to try and, you know, enter into a market without by not doing that, I think are going to... Uh, get themselves increasingly in trouble. So you're going to see more businesses close down, but you're going to see the bigger businesses get bigger. Mm. I know that's probably not what people want to hear, but I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it's quite hard with like when the economy and stuff, with you know, interest rates and everything going on at the moment. That uh, it is quite hard for a small business to go, oh, these you know, breaches are scary. I'm going to invest X, Y, Z dollars into making sure we're secure when they're getting whacked with you know employees wanting more, mm. and, you know, inflation, interest rates going up, and that kind of stuff. Um, mm. So it's a it's a weird time, but uh, but it's not hard to cover yourself, right? It's not mm. hard to cover yourself within reasonable terms. You don't have to spend a hundred thousand bucks to cover yourself as a small business mm. for, in terms of privacy and data breaches. You know, mm. you breach good people, you you, uh, you brief good people like Red and Arctic Wolf, and uh, mm. uh, and get them to investigate things because it doesn't cost a million bucks to get yeah. them to check it out. No, you're right. And to be honest with you, I mean, most of the stuff that uh, we see and now friends at McGraw Nickel and that kind of thing is uh, general technology hygiene yeah. not being done properly is most it. of the time when stuff happens. But it's a bit of a rabbit war as well because there's so much you can do with cyber. Um, you know, yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's a rabbit hole. Let's go down. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. You've shared some good insights around, uh, you know, what, whether that's having that space, AI conversation, love the where that's going as well. What's what's next for you? Obviously, you're starting as partner in Mills Oakley. Yeah, well, I've just just become a partner, yeah. and um, so I'm going to see where that takes me and yep. grow that as big as I can, and hopefully um, get fat, rich, and old. <laughs> <laughs> Make some more albums. Yeah, yeah albums coming out. Well, I'm definitely doing that. Yes, actually, I'm about to release another one. Yep. Um, so I'm just doing it myself. I'm not really plugging it or doing anything like that. I'm really the worst businessman for myself in the world. I'm happy to look after everyone else's. Um, but yeah, no, I've just finished a 10 song album about to drop on the Spotify and um, all the rest. And I'll keep doing that because I love doing it. I've yeah. got a patient wife who likes listening. So yeah, you know, you can make us a new intro, Brad. <laughs> Maybe. Come on, Come on Scott. Maybe. <laughs> awesome, mate. Thanks for coming in. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. <laughs>